As we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me to our first scripture reading. Um, It's Exodus 20. Exodus 20, if you can hold a a finger or a ribbon in this text, we'll also be reading from Deuteronomy 5. So first, Exodus chapter 20. We begin there at the 8th verse. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord hath made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Then again, if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5, we begin there at verse 12. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember that thou wast a servant of the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And may indeed he bless it to us richly this evening. This is our third and our final evening taking up the fourth commandment. And I suppose, I suppose I could read this text to you at any point as we work through the Ten Commandments. But I think especially with the fourth commandment, it's, it's right for me just to step back and read the kind of injunction a preacher is under when coming to such a topic. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest not thou thyself. Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal thyself, and so on. Beloved, you and I, we are under the same injunctions this evening. And when it comes to the fourth commandment, I think it's right for us to acknowledge that even even the greatest teachers among us, even those who are renowned in the church of Jesus Christ in our generation, must confess that we are so little practiced in what's before us this evening. We don't simply know how much we've lost. And so as we come to the fourth commandment, I think it's right for us to do so with that that kind of mentality. Uh, we, We are a people who have lost so much. As we look at the fourth commandment, uh, there are a number of ways that we can think of it. 
But I think perhaps the most helpful as we come to our subject this evening is that the fourth commandment presents to us something of a nexus, a fulcrum, if you like, between the first and the second tables of the law. It's where the duties of God and the duties to man, as it were, kind of converge. They coalesce in a sort of way. And we'll see that in just a few moments' time. But, but the idea is here you have the crux, if you like, the meeting, where man's obligation to man and man's obligation to God really do converge. And friend, as we look at this text, you'll see that even in the way the commandments presented to us. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. But then note this. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. I want you to notice who that's addressed to. It's addressed to the paterfamilias. It's addressed to the head of the home. It's addressed to the one, of course, who would have the full authority to shut down all of the enterprises in his property. He would be the one who would have the final say in, in when work began and when it finished. And so, and so it makes sense that it's addressed to him, but I want you to notice this. As you look at this list, it starts with himself. It starts with his own activity. He himself must rest. And then note how it goes. All under his supervision, then, are called to do the same. It's a striking thing, but the fourth commandment shows us something, of course, that the Western 21st century mind is so averse to, that there is an order in the home. But note what the Lord does. He paints a picture of this kind of order. The obligation of the fourth commandment, if you like, has a descending force to it. And as that force, as it were, trickles through the various aspects of the home, you and I are given a picture. You and I are given a picture of a home that is genuinely resting. Genuinely keeping the Sabbath of the Lord their God. That's the idea. The fourth commandment reinforces the, the created order. It even reinforces and presupposes what you have in the fifth commandment. But in this text, we're reminded that it's the entirety of the home. The entirety of the home that is to be keeping the Sabbath of the Lord their God. And so, what is forbidden? That is our subject this evening. What is it that here is proscribed? And the answer to that is that we are not to do anything that would profane this day. In other words, to use the language of our text, we are not to do anything that would be contrary to keeping the Sabbath of the Lord our God. To put it as an injunction, and this is our theme this evening, it simply means this, you must not profane the Lord's day. You must not profane the Lord's day. What does that mean? Well, for us to understand that, you and I need to look at what is what is forbidden expressly. And the first thing that we encounter here is that the simple clause, in it thou shalt not do any labor or any work. And I want you to notice, friend, that in this text, it is not a prohibition to sin. In this text, you have a prohibition for lawful labor. Those otherwise benign, lawful 
enterprises must come to an end on this day. But it's more than that. As we said, as we said last Lord's Day evening, what is enjoined here upon you and upon me is that we engage in sanctified rest. And that's the emphasis that you find at the end. They are to keep the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It's not merely rest, but it's keeping the day as unto the Lord. That point of emphasis is not repetition with no meaning. It is emphasizing the manner in which this rest is occurring. You and I are keeping this day unto God. Now, at the risk of repeating much of what we said last time we were together, I'll simply read to you what what an early church father said on this point. This idea of, of resting in order to worship. This idea of sanctified rest. Augustine puts it this way. He says, God commanded that we should rest on the Lord's day. That ceasing from all worldly business, we might be more prompt and ready for the worship of God. When we should have nothing to hinder us from it. Note what Augustine says there. The purpose of our cessation of labors is so that we may worship. That's the idea. And friend, we could go on at considerable length here, but... But keeping that before us, we have a clear picture of what it then means to profane the Lord's Day. Any activity that is not an act of worship, any activity that is not a work of necessity or a work of mercy, is forbidden. This evening I simply don't have time, and and I don't know how profitable it would be at this juncture to go through every particular. But there you have the test. There you have what the fourth commandment clearly sets in front of us. At every point you and I can ask in the course of this day, is it an act or conducive to worship? Is it an act of mercy or is it an act of necessity? And friend, the scriptures are clear. If the answer to any of those questions is no, then friend, the commandment tells us we have profaned the day. Whatever is contrary to sanctified rest, the scriptures hold forth, is a profanation of the Lord's day. Now, friend, as we look at this commandment, we can take it in two ways. We can think about it externally. And so you have that injunction. In it thou shalt not do any work. The idea there, again, is the idea that, that you will not engage in that lawful, otherwise lawful employment, that gainful labor that you would work in the other six days. That's prohibited. And again, as we'll see in a moment's time, whenever Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, as the people are are now, as it were, coming back to their own land and, and really reviving the work that was there, he finds that they're there trading. The market day and the Sabbath day are one and the same. And, and you remember what Nehemiah does. He says, this is not to be. This is not to be. He has no issue with a market day. The issue is the fact that it now here has occupied what ought to have been a day of sanctified rest. It was otherwise lawful, but on the Sabbath day it was prohibited. That, I suppose, raises one of the most pressing questions. What about, well, perhaps recreations? We wouldn't typically refer to that as labor. What of recreations? Uh, and I, I won't go into the, the details and, and the contours and origins of that discussion that took place in Britain. But I'll simply turn you to the Word of God on that particular point. 
What is it that the scriptures hold forth with regard to even recreations? We can go a step further. What does the word say with regard even to our internal disposition? Those two things are intimately related. What does this commandment say not only to my hand, but to my heart? For that we turn to Isaiah. The prophet speaking as God's mouthpiece to the church. He says thus, he says, Turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath, call the Sabbath a delight. I want you to notice that in that injunction, pleasure is what's really central. First of all, he says, thy pleasure, that must cease. And so he's speaking there of a corrupt pleasure. He's speaking there of affection for something that they ought not to be tied to on the Sabbath day. In other words, he's dealing with a people whose affections are not right. But then he follows with a positive command. He says clearly, call the Sabbath a delight. And by that he doesn't mean ritualism. By that he doesn't mean simply simply holding to, to the day itself. But of course he means all that the Sabbath means. You are to call everything that the Sabbath indicates. All that God has enjoined for the Sabbath day. You are to call that a delight. And you remember, friend, when we think of the Sabbath day, you and I are called to enter into the rest of God through Jesus Christ and in the use of those means specially appointed. He says, call that a delight. So, friend, that's the command for your heart and mine. The fourth commandment in this text so powerfully so powerfully is told, it it does not enjoin some kind of cold or formal Sabbatarianism. God has no interest in the formal or ritualistic Sabbatarian. What he requires is one who will indeed keep the Sabbath from the heart. That, of course, will have external implications. That, of course, will mean that he will labors and his otherwise lawful recreations. But it's not enough just to stop what other men might see. God actually commands that you and that I, that we would both call the Sabbath day and all that it involves truly a delight to our souls. He deals here with the formalist. And friend, you remember that Isaiah often dealt with the church, often dealt with them who said, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God and yet had no real delight in the things of God. The Sabbath keeping that's enjoined here demands the heart. And friend, what you find here then is a, is a text also that reminds us that our hearts are to be so weaned from the world that we can do this. You see, as you look through the scriptures again through the prophets, you'll find that they dealt with a generation not to, not to remove from our own experience. Amos turns to his own and he says this, he says, When will the new moon be gone that we may sow corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat? In other words, Amos comes to a generation who are counting down the hours so they could get back to their work. 
Their minds and their hearts were so fixed on their external employment and concerns that that really, before the Sabbath day, before it came, they were busy about their labors and, and they had no thought about the Sabbath day to come. And then all right through the Sabbath day, their minds and their hearts were fixed on things that it ought not to be. They could not wait, as it were, for the Monday morning. See, friend, there are many, there are many in our circles of whom that's quite true. The last thing they do on the Saturday evening is their labors. They count the Sabbath day. Sabbath day is something of an interruption. And on the Monday, they can't wait to take up their recreations and their employments. It ought not to be, friend, it ought not to be. The Lord here commands you and he commands me to be of such a heart that we are quite willing to relinquish those things, quite willing to delight in the Sabbath day. Well, friend, as we look at this text, I think it's right for us to meditate at some length about its equity, the reasonableness of this injunction. The commandment reads, it's the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And then it follows with with that promise that's annexed. He says, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so you have two things, two things that that show to us the, the, the reasonableness of the command. It is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. My friend, if, if it is from God, if it is from your God who is your creator, then of course he has prerogative to make such an injunction. And if it is coming from God as your redeemer, he certainly also has, as it were, a super to make such a claim. And then on top of that, friend, he annexes the entirety of the fourth commandment with this wonderful promise that those who keep it aright will know blessing on this day. Sovereignty and mercy. Both of these demonstrate the equity or the reasonableness of this command. And friend, when when it's broken, when it's broken, Sabbath keepers are rightly condemned. In Exodus 31, the law reads, Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. And I pause there just for a moment to allow that really to strike you. Because I think there's something about that that really makes us quite uncomfortable. We don't think, we don't think about the fourth commandment and its violation as being so serious. But clearly the word of God does. And not only do we have this precept, but we have an example of its exercise in Numbers 15, the text that we read. There you, there you have, you remember the man who's, who's picking up sticks on the Sabbath day and And you remember, they hold him for a time so that they can go to God and they can ask him, what do we do with him? Now what's striking is in the text, you don't find as you do in the case of Korah, the people going as it were to God to make a judgment between Moses and Korah and Korah being miraculously or supernaturally destroyed. 
You, you don't find in the case of this man like you do Uzzah and Uzziah, supernatural tokens of judgment coming upon them. Instead, what does the Lord God command Israel to do? He commands the entire congregation to take that man out and to stone them themselves. And why? Because he would have the entire congregation concur in his judgment. He would have all Israel acknowledge the heinousness of Sabbath breaking. And what's striking is, friend, you remember in Numbers 15, you have there the Lord speaking of the man who sins high-handedly or presumptuously. He's a man who's to be cut off. The, the example that we have of this Sabbath breaker being stoned to death is an example of a high-handed sin and a man being cut off. And you and I look, when we look at the fourth commandment, I don't think we think in this way. I think we are conditioned, whether we like to admit it or not, to think that these kinds of things are not so heinous as they really are. But, but I remind you what our larger catechism says to us. It says to us that any infraction on the first table of the law has a greater aggravated guilt than any infraction on the second table. Let, let, me, let me make that or make that clear this evening. Which, according to the bar of judgment, is more heinous? A man lying under oath, or the man who takes God's name in vain? Which is more heinous, according to the bar of heaven? The man who steals from his neighbor, or corrupts the worship of God? Then, friend, what about Sabbath-keeping? You say, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I'm there with you, preacher. I know. I know that this is quite contrary to our own disposition, but, but friend, our consciences are not infallible. And we can't measure things by the standard and by the measure of the world. Beloved, when you and I break the fourth commandment, when we profane the Sabbath day, it is a sin immediately against God. It's an infraction on the first table of the law. And we should look at that as being more heinous, genuinely, friend, more heinous than any infraction against the second table. Let society say what it may. That's, beloved, the fourth commandment. And, and why, why so heinous? We don't simply have time, but but friend, think of what's involved when we profane the Sabbath day. Think most obviously about the rebellion that's involved. God says, as he is sovereign, I will, I will dictate the days of your labor and the day of your rest. And when you and I break the Sabbath day, like Pharaoh, we say, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Am I not sovereign over my own labors and employment, over my own recreations and rest? Friend, how clearly is it a token of worldliness when we can't set in our mind or with our own hands those worldly labors aside? And what does worldliness really mean? Just briefly, friend, think of how the Apostle puts it. 
He writes to the Philippians, he says, Many walk of whom I have told you often, and, and now I'll tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. But then he describes them, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. Note that threefold description. Their God is their belly. That is, they, they are addicted, as it were, to their own pleasures. They mind their pleasures more than the things of God. They glory in their shame. In the context you and I are supposed to see, their abuse of the creatures is more important to them than anything that they hear from Christ. And then thirdly, they say, he says here that they are earthly minded. The apostle is not saying that it's wrong to think about temporal employments, but what is he saying about these folks? He's saying they are they are inextricably tied to earthly things. They can't let them aside. Beloved, when you and I can't keep the fourth commandment, when we can't make a sincere and heartfelt endeavor to keep the fourth commandment, friend, that should give us pause. It should cause us to grieve. Because it only reminds us that we are so tied to the things of this earth. We are, our souls are clinging to the dust. But we can go a step further. Friend, in Sabbath keeping, what lies behind it? Not only is it rebellion, but, but friend, a large portion of it, if, if we really were able to distill it to its root, a large portion of it comes to unbelief, doesn't it? I mean, think about it, friend. What has God done? He is annexed to the fourth commandment, this promise that, that those who keep it are right. Those who keep it in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will know blessing on that day. But friend, if you search your hearts, how frequently, how frequently at least in our dispositions do we doubt that? Would we not be more conscientious Sabbath keepers if we really believed that this was a market day for our souls? Would we not be far more willing to let go of our, in our minds and in all other things, those worldly things, those otherwise lawful recreations, knowing that real and lasting blessing may be known? We can go further. Just briefly, friend, is it not a clear token of somebody's aversion to the worship of God and that disposition that cries, what a weariness is it to be found in God's service? Is it not also a clear picture of self-reliance? The man, the woman who is so addicted to their labors that they can't let them go from their minds or from their hands a single day because they are worried of the money they'll lose. The student who can't stop his studies on the Lord's day because he, fe he fears all. Is it not a token of self-reliance? Is it not a token of self-reliance that, that they won't set these things aside at God's command? And is it not a picture of ingratitude? Where God has said, I have set this day that you may walk with me. And through my son may enjoy special fellowship and blessing. And that we spurn it. As we close, friend, we come to the exercise. 
How have we seen in the scriptures these things applied to those who break the Sabbath day? Well, friend, as you look at Nehemiah 13, you have again, as that example I've mentioned before, Nehemiah turning to the markets in Judah and Jerusalem. He says to them so very plainly that you are not to be engaged in this work. But there's, there's a line in that, in that exchange that I think we could quickly read over, but we shouldn't. He says, what evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. This goes back, I suppose, to our own worldliness and our our own ill-informed consciences. But what does Nehemiah say? He says, you see those monuments of destruction all around you. You see the charred rubble, the buildings now laid in ruin. You remember in your minds the mothers and the children torn away from each other with Babylon's incursion. You remember those 70 years of mourning and exile. Nehemiah says, in part, those things came to our fathers because we had profaned the Sabbath day. Jeremiah says, if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day and not to bear a burden, even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Beloved, the word of God is is clear, staggeringly clear that that notwithstanding our, our little attention that we pay to these things, notwithstanding how how calloused our consciences are on such a subject. These things invite the judgment of God upon nations, upon churches, upon homes. So friend, the first question you and I have to ask is, do we make conscience of the fourth commandment? I mean, do we really? And beloved, I'm saying this to you as your minister, as somebody who has to stand before God one day. Friend, do we really, do we really see this in as heinous a light as the scriptures paint this for us? If you're ahead of a home, do you see the fourth commandment in the way that the commandment itself would have you see it? That you, before God, have a responsibility as much as lies within your power to ensure that the Sabbath is hallowed. I think many, many folks would be quite averse to that kind of enforcement, seem far too authoritarian. But many fathers on the last day will find, they will find that the Lord God really did require them to speak really did require them to rule with as much power as he was given to keep this day and to ensure that those in his home were doing so as well.
And friend, you in the congregation who, who aren't heads of home, do you make conscious not only to stop your labors, but, but also to train your hearts? The Lord God has no interest, as we found, in a formal Sabbatarian, in a cold Sabbath keeper. The Lord does require of you, and he requires of me, a heart that is inclined to the work. you with encouragement, because there is, Christian, so much in this text, though it forbids so much, and though the breaking of this commandment, of course, invites so much wrath, this commandment does remind us that God has left a way to fallen sinners that they may rest in Christ. The prophet says to the wicked, there is no peace, and that could be written over every single human head from the fall of man right to the end of the human race. It could have been written so, that none would ever know what it is to rest ever again in God's rest. That could have been man's plight were it not for the free and the gracious decree of God. And friend, what does the Sabbath day then hold out to you? That a day has been left that you may walk with the Lord God you have a weekly reminder that that way of approach is still open to sinners. You have a daily, you have a weekly reminder that indeed a new and a living way has been made, and that through Jesus Christ. And beloved, not only do you have a day as a reminder, but remember to sinners it was promised that in the right use, the sincere use of this day through Christ, you will know divine blessing. This is a day, truly a day of mercy and a market day for the soul. And so, friend, allow that to encourage you. These things the Lord God has left to you as a command, as a duty, but with so many promises annexed. But as we close, friend, the exhortation is simple. It is simply to be a true Sabbatarian. That is to use the Sabbath with an eye to Christ. There is no Sabbath keeping as we saw now two weeks ago. There is no Sabbath keeping but with, a, with an eye fixed upon Christ. Beloved, you and I are to engage in every act of worship and even as much as we can in our acts of necessity, and certainly in our acts of mercy on this day, with an eye to him, who is Lord of the Sabbath. And we look to him. We look to him that he would grant grace that we may do so. Amen.